Good morning, saints. What a song, amen? He just heard and sang Hope of the Ages. And the chorus we sing says, Hope of the Ages, Isaiah's great light, Abraham's offspring, blessing of Jacob, Judah's might, hope of the ages, David's true son, desire of the nations, promised salvation, God with us. Need I say more? We're seeing of none other than the Lord, Jesus Christ, Jesus, Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This morning, what I want to do in our time together in God's Word is I want to hone in on the idea of hope in Jesus Christ for the nations. The nations need hope. Amen? Right now, there are 45 armed conflicts occurring in the Middle East and in North Africa. There are another 35 armed conflicts occurring throughout the rest of Africa, 21 in Asia, 7 in Europe, 6 in Latin America. And we know from God's word that nations rise against nations. We know that different groups within a nation rise against other groups within that same nation. Once again, these 114 conflicts are occurring right now. Also occurring right now is many of you are wondering why I would introduce my Christmas sermon by sharing the state of international and international affairs. Specifically, you might be asking, what does Christmas have to do with the warring of nations and the battling among ethnicities? And the answer is most everything. That is, of course, if we are thinking about Christmas in the same way. So therefore, I need to define Christmas. Is that not right? For the purposes of this sermon, I defined Christmas in this way. Christmas is a specific season of reflection and focus on Christ first coming to earth with an eye toward his second coming to consider and delight in the certain promises and faithful implications that stem from the person and work of Jesus. Christmas is a specific season of reflection and focus on Christ's first coming to earth with an eye toward his second coming to consider and delight in the certain promises and faithful implications that stem all from the person and work of Jesus. Or we could put it this way, Christmas is a time to remember Christ's first coming to anticipate his second coming so that we might contemplate and rejoice in the realities that we have and the realities that will come to fruition all because of who Christ is and what Christ 
has done. If we go with that definition, then Christmas has nearly everything to do with every and all nations. For Jesus is not only the hope for all times, that is the hope of the ages, but also Jesus is the hope for all peoples, that is the hope of the nations. And now what I want to do is I want to show you from God's word how the coming of Jesus has always been the true hope for each and every nation. And so would you please open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. And we're going to jump around all over the place in Genesis and beyond today. But if there's one text that is really the crux of everything that I have to say today, it is Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. And so I therefore now invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told, them, told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Let's pray. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your perfect plan and provision of salvation. We thank you for this season wherein we can focus on the advents of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we confess that we need hope and that our nation needs hope and that the nations need hope. And we confess that true everlasting hope can only be found in Christ. Oh Lord, forgive us for taking for granted the precious gift we have in Christ Jesus. Impress upon our hearts, even now in this hour, the utter joy that we ought always have as a result of knowing this hope. And Lord, as we are conformed into his image, help us to shine bright and offer the gift of hope to the watching world this season. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18, at least in part, is really the main idea of our sermon this morning. And what I want to show us is that the Holy Scriptures teach that Christ alone is the hope for our nation, the hope for any nation, and the hope for all nations, for all ages. Therefore, redeem self day, behold him as such and rejoice over his advents this Christmas season. It's my prayer that the Lord would help us to go beyond the gifts and goodies this season, that he would help us to go beyond the feelings and the food this season, that he would help us to go beyond the many good things that we should and that I will enjoy unto his glory this season, but that he might help us to behold just a little more, just a little more the glorious God-man, Jesus Christ as the true, deep, everlasting hope of the nations and of the ages in this Christmas season. And I want to try to meet this goal of expressing this main idea in three steps. First, we're going to see trouble in paradise and beyond. Then we're going to see hope for all from the beginning. And lastly, we'll look at hope for all in the end. So let's look at the first step, trouble in paradise and beyond. 
The Bible has a pattern, doesn't it? The scriptures are full, absolutely full of hope. God continually offers us, the reader of his word, genuine, lasting hope in his word. Can I get an amen to that? However, that hope is often preceded by the presence or promise of trouble. Beloved, we only need the light of hope in the midst of trouble and tribulation. Darkness and disaster are the settings wherein hope shines. And we see this in the very first book of the Bible. We know we're preaching through the book of Genesis in our regular preaching series, and so we're well aware of the fact that Genesis 1 recounts the creation of the world. And the last verse of Genesis 1 says this, And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There's not an offer of hope because everything was great. Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of man and woman. And we see that they are set up in paradise to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over it once again. There's not an offer of hope because everything's wonderful. But in Genesis 3, darkness arrives. We read in Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then... The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Anytime man seeks to hide himself from God. We need some hope. This is the first instance in the Bible where we're introduced to this darkness. And if we were just to stop there, we would be wondering if the darkness continued and that there was no hope offered. But Genesis 3 doesn't end there, praise the Lord. We're told the consequences for this first act of sin from our first parents. 
But we're also told what God said to the serpent, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And now we have the great promise. The first mention of the gospel, the proto-euangelion as it is called, it's the promised seed. God himself declares in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the seed of hope. It's going to carry us all the way through the Bible. Hope is offered in Genesis 3.15. However, the majority of Genesis 3-11 through details really how bad things became upon the earth. Certainly, God offers hope throughout the narrative, but once we get through Genesis 11, the reader finds themselves wondering how God is going to make this right. At the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are driven away from paradise, and we need hope. In Genesis chapter 4, the very first murder is recounted. We need hope. If you look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it tells us the general state of affairs upon the earth. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this verse provides background for the judgment that God enacts in the following passages. We need hope. The remainder of Genesis 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 recount the flood and God's covenant with Noah and creation. And while God righteously judged the wicked world through the flood, he also made a covenant with mankind in creation. And in that covenant, we find hope in God's promise not to destroy the earth via a flood again. And perhaps we begin to think that God is going to make things right with Noah. But at the end of chapter 9, we find out that Noah is a sinful man also. And so we need hope. Genesis 10 begins to show us the formation of what became nations. Look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 32. It says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. However, the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 11, gives us details about the overview that we just saw in Genesis 10. How did these nations begin to cover the earth? Well, we're told in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. The text reads, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and settled there. 
And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. We realize that the dispersion of man and the confusion of language is a consequence of man's desire to make a name for himself. The dispersion of ethnic groups or nations and language groups isn't necessarily a good thing at this point but rather a judgment of God. And then, at the end of Genesis 11, Abram is introduced. But it's not until Genesis chapter 12 that God begins to reveal his plan to execute the promise of Genesis 3.15. By the end of Genesis 11, we find that we still need hope explicit hope. By the end of Genesis 11, we have nations, and biblically speaking, a nation refers to a distinct people group separated by language from other people groups and gathered to a specific land. So we have the nations, but where is the explicit hope for the nations? And this brings us to the second step, Hope for all from the beginning. The idea of Christ as the hope for all begins, yes, even in the very first book of the Bible. In one sense, we saw it earlier in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, but it becomes clearer as we work our way through Genesis, and it will become even more clear after that. And notice that I have put the term all in parentheses. The reason why I do this is I want to emphasize that often in the Bible, the term all is referring to all nations or to all people rather than to all individuals. Nevertheless, Christ as the hope for the nations begins to take shape all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when the Lord God initiates interaction and engagement with Abram. Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Genesis 50 provide several instances and nuances and additions to what is known as the Abrahamic covenant, but we're just going to look at three texts. We're going to first look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 12, verse 1, after the nations have been established, God's word says this. 
Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's funny, if you work your way through the narrative, the nations have just been established. We're told at the end of Genesis chapter 11 that Abraham is from the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans. But what's the first thing that God does? He says, go and leave your nation. Go and leave your family group. Go and leave the people that you know. He's called to leave his nation so that through him, the nations might be blessed. Well, the nations were raging in their rebellion against God. What was God doing? God was determined to raise up a nation through which he would redeem the world and bless all nations. Dare I say that Christmas is on the mind of God in Genesis 12? As we know, the experience of this blessing was not and is not immediate. Soon, people will despise Abraham. People will curse Abraham and his seed. Nevertheless, there will be some from every nation of the earth who will bless Abraham and his descendants so that these words will become an experiential reality. When the Lord says to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now we fast forward to Genesis chapter 22, which we read earlier. At this point, Abraham had his long-awaited son, Isaac, and God had made clear in Genesis chapter 17 and again in Genesis chapter 1 that Isaac would be the first installment of offspring in the fulfillment of the covenant. But now, Abraham's faith and Abraham's obedience will be tested as Abraham is called to willingly sacrifice his only son. And we know from Hebrews 11 that Abraham believes in the possibility of resurrection. And the reason that he believes that is because God promised Isaac as an heir to the covenant. And as the story goes, as we have just read earlier, God honors Abraham's obedience by doing what? By offering and providing a substitutionary sacrifice. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord speaking once again said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. In verse 13, Abraham lifts up his eye and he sees the ram caught in the thicket. It's not a coincidence. That's providence of God. 
that's exactly how Abraham receives this. He calls that place the Lord will provide. And certainly you sense the irony. The angel, or as I like to say, the messenger of the Lord, whom I and many others understand to be the pre-incarnate Christ himself, steps in to provide a substitutionary sacrifice, knowing that at a later time he will enter into his own creation through the line of Abraham to be the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice. And then this messenger of the Lord utters these words, beginning in verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. As Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son, God the Father was willing and did sacrifice his only son. As Isaac obeyed the voice of his father, Christ obeyed the voice of his father by being the substitutionary sacrifice to bless the nations of the earth. And this brings us to one final text in the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis chapter 49. We understand that Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac's the heir, and then Jacob is the heir. Jacob will be later called Israel. But that Jacob has sons as well, and that through Judah, the Messiah, the Christ, will come. And what we have in Genesis 49 is Jacob's blessing of his children, his prophecies about what will happen in the tribes and the people of Israel. Look at chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come or in the latter days. This is the first time that that phrase appears in Scripture. In the latter days or in the days to come. And son by son, he is going to prophesy about what will happen to that son and his people. And look, beginning in verse 8, what Jacob says of Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to, uh, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he, was washed, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter 
than milk. Verse 8 shows us the prominence of Judah, shows us the victory of Judah, shows us the subservience to Judah, that Judah is going to be preeminent, he's going to be prominent, that his brothers shall bow down before him, that he will be victorious, and that all the rest of the nation of Israel shall be subservient to him. Verse 9 speaks of a lion-like ferocity, and we're well aware of the fact that Jesus is known as the Lion of Judah. Verse 10 in particular is important. It says, The, shep- the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. We think of a scepter or a ruler's staff as kingly rule, as reign. Goes on and says, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Anytime that you see that word people in the plural in the Old Testament, it's not talking about Israel. It's talking about the goyim, the Gentiles, the peoples. And so what we see here in Genesis 49 in this prophecy that all nations, all peoples, all Gentiles will bow down and serve Judah. So we have in verse 10, the reign and rule over all peoples or over all nations. And then verses 11 and 12 provide word pictures for us of abundance and goodness of the king's reign from Judah. The vine will be so prevalent that people will be tying up their donkeys to it. The the land will be flowing with such milk that their teeth will be white. Genesis indicates that Christ, that Christ, this promised one from the line of Abraham, who will rule and reign, is the hope for all nations from the very beginning. And believe this, beloved, he remains the hope of all nations in the end. This brings us to our third and final step. Hope for all in the end. And we could go to a lot of different passages in the New Testament to show that Christ remains the hope for all nations in the end. But I want to look at five texts that are directly linked to the concepts that we have already observed in Genesis. Let's begin in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians is really a book that's all about faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is opposing any concept that works need to be added to the work of Christ for one to be right with God. He's declaring that justification is by faith alone. And beginning in chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is really arguing that the Abrahamic covenant is superior to the law, that the Abrahamic covenant is superior to the Mosaic covenant. That's his argument. And picking up in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone 
who is hanged on a tree. In other words, the law demands a curse. Because the law does what? It exposes, it, it reveals sin. And once we're all met with the reality that we are sinners before God, then we are also cursed before God. And if we get that, all the joy that springs within our heart in this Christmas season, that Christ entered into this world to do what? To redeem us from this curse. Why? Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. It's not just for the nation of Israel. It's not just for Hebrews. But that through Christ, this blessing that was promised to Abraham, we who are not part of the nation of Israel can participate in that reality as well. Well, what's the result? He continues in verse 14, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The question is, well, where is the spirit promised? And the answer is the indwelling of the spirit is promised in the new covenant. So what we have here is a link between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant that Gentiles can participate in the spiritual blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant because by faith we are spiritual, not ethnic, but spiritual children of Abraham. And then Paul's going to go on and give us a glorious picture. He says in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, so he's arguing from the greater to the lesser at this point. He's saying, let's take, for instance, a covenant between men. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. What has Paul just done for us? Paul has just interpreted on the basis of Christ the text that we read earlier, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, that through Abraham's offspring, the nations would be blessed. Now he says that offspring is singular. Yes, there are a plurality of offsprings from Abraham. That's his ethnic offspring. But that's not what is being talked about here. We're talking about a singular offspring, none other than Christ himself. These promises were made to Abraham and to his singular offspring, who is Christ. And then he continues on in verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law, the Mosaic law, that is, which came 430 years afterward, 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. 
Mosaic law with all of its rules and regulations was to reveal the reality that all are sinners before God. But the Abrahamic covenant is not annulled or changed as a result of the Mosaic covenant. The promises given to Abraham, we can say yes and amen to in Christ. It's for the nation of Israel and for the nations as well. Well, Let's turn to the book of Revelation. How does this all work itself out? We have the Abrahamic covenant pointing to Christ. Christ comes and Paul tells us that the offspring that is being spoken of is none other than Christ such that we who are uh, Gentiles can participate in the blessings of the new covenant. Well, Revelation is going to finish it for us. Beginning in Revelation chapter 5. What a glorious text. We have this heavenly worship scene going on beginning in Revelation chapter 4. And John has this vision, and he's relaying for us what he sees taking place. And it picks up in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him, this is the Father, who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So you have the Father holding a scroll filled with words from front and back, and it's sealed with these seven seals. I understand this to be the title deed to the earth, the title deed to all that is within the earth, which would include the nations. John continues, verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders came to me and said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And listen to this new song that they sing. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I had, and I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is John's vision of heavenly worship on the basis of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ came into his own creation and he is the Lion of Judah at the same time he is the Lamb who was slain. Upon his person and upon his work, all nations will adore him. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21 all the way through Revelation 22 verse 5 is what we acknowledge to be the eternal state where there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and all will worship the Lord who are in that new heaven and new earth in spirit and in truth and sin will be done away with. And if you are to read through Revelation 21 and 22, you're going to find a word that's repeated. And that word is nations. And the new heaven and the new earth, the nations will be his. And nation will be in harmony with nation, all looking rightly upon the Lord Jesus Christ and worshiping him in truth. We see it first in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Again, John in a vision, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment." The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Up in verse 3, the ESV translates it, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Notice that that 
can be understood as peoples, meaning nations as well. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, this idea that Christ will rule the nations. We jump down to chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. We see the, the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, coming down to earth. And then in verse 22, John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In the eternal state, once again, we see the nations before the Lord worshiping him. And lastly, we see the conclusion, the end of the biblical storyline in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22. We see nations mentioned again. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Beloved, the nations need hope. And according to God's word, Jesus Christ alone is the hope for the nations. In God's economy, what we find in Genesis 3 and Genesis, through Genesis 11, this, this terrible reality that man is bad, God redeems. He says, I will redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and language, and they will worship me forevermore. There was trouble in paradise, and that trouble extended to the world and to her nations. Yet there was and is hope for the nations. And what I want to encourage us to do this Christmas season is just for a moment, allow that reality to sink in. Wars and rumors of wars, difficulty and tragedy, cancers and sickness, there's a lot. Everybody's carrying around something. But this reality trumps them all. That a day is coming, brother, sister, friend, where the Lord will rule the nations. 
in Christmas time, with all the festivities, with all the fun, with all the red and green, with all the trees and lights, fill in the blank, whatever you like about Christmas, is much more than those things. It's a time for the church to remember who we are in Christ, to remember the certain promises that Christ has given us that will come to fruition when he comes again. The nations will bow before him. Christmas, beloved, is a specific season of reflection. Reflect upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his first coming. Look toward his second coming and delight in the certain promises and faithful implications that stem from the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or simply this way. Come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. And may we rejoice with exceeding joy over the advents of Christ this Christmas season. Lord, I pray that you would help your people to do just this. As we sing once again hope of the ages, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts that these things are so because your word is true. We thank you for the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ will rule over the nations in perfect harmony and perfect unity in the eternal state. We long for that day, but Lord, we're not there yet. I pray that you would not allow our circumstances and the difficulties that we find ourselves in to quench Jesus as our true everlasting hope. Help us by your spirit to remember who we are in Christ and to remember who Christ is and what he has done and what he will do this Christmas season such that we might rejoice and adore him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.